My name is Colm Flynn and I am the Rome correspondent for News Nightly and EWTN News. Colm was raised Catholic, like so many in Ireland. Big Irish-Scottish Catholic family and growing up it was always second nature or Catholic faith. We would have priests over to the house, nuns coming to visit. Very much you're formed in the values of the Catholic Church, so charity, love, uh, respect, forgiveness. All these things from a young age, I, I connected with my Catholic faith. And again, because I was always around priests and nuns, encouraged to be an altar server at a young age, it was just very comfortable to me. And it always seemed very normal and very right as well. And for me, from a young age, that was a really great thing informing me and my personality and who I am today. Having lived for several years in the U.S., Colm says he's heard just about every possible stereotype about the Irish. The great thing about being Irish in America is that everybody in America thinks they're Irish as well. Some Irish get annoyed by it, but I think it is great. Where else in the world would you get a whole country like America falling over themselves to say that they love your country, they've been to your country, they want to go? I think it's a great compliment and the stereotypes, when they would hit me with the stereotypes, I would lap them up and I'd say, yeah, we have the lucky charms. Yes, I've seen leprechauns. Yes, there's more sheep than people in Ireland. Yes, we drink all day. And then I go up to mass and I go and have more drink. I just think it's great. It's great fun. As strong as Catholic values and cultural Catholicism is in Ireland, Colm said it's clear that Ireland is, in many ways, no longer the strongly Catholic country it once was. If you compare when Pope John Paul II came to visit Ireland in 1979, I think it was something like 79 or 80% of the population came out to greet him. 80% of the country came out to welcome the Pope. Compare that to when Pope Francis came to visit Ireland in 2018. He came to a much different Ireland. The fabric of Irish society has changed completely. And a lot of those changes have not been compatible with the Catholic Church. At the time that John Paul II visited Ireland, weekly mass attendance was estimated at over 80%. But by 2018, the year Pope Francis visited, the percentage had dropped to an estimated 35. Sadly, much of the decline of the Church in Ireland is because of a lack of trust after the abuse crisis. From high rates of clerical sexual abuse that began to come to light in the 1990s to revelations just a few months ago of high mortality rates and allegations of mistreatment in church-run homes for unmarried mothers and babies in the 20th century. Cover-up stories, that is what they link with the Catholic Church now, sadly. A lot of it is merited. Some of it, I think, is a narrative by the media. I'm sad to say that most people my age, most people that I know, they have fallen away from their faith. I think the ones who have stayed with their faith, it is much stronger because it has had to have been stronger to endure the onslaught of abuse. And you really have to be able to defend your faith now to your friends. If you go out for dinner in Ireland with uh, young people, and if you say you're Catholic, even worse, if you say that you're Catholic and you believe in the teachings of the Catholic Church in terms of social issues, you are really cross-examined. So you've got to be able to defend yourself. And most young people don't have the courage to do that. It's a difficult thing to do. The people I do know who are Catholic are more quiet about it now. But there are certainly glimmers of hope for Catholicism in Ireland. Just this week, Pope Francis designated the Shrine of Our Lady of Knock 
a famous Irish site of an apparition of Mary in the 1870s as an international Marian and Eucharistic shrine. Colum says that despite observing the church's decline both as a journalist and among his friends, he has reason to remain optimistic. I have to say, and this is an honest opinion as well, I think there is a lot of hope for the church in Ireland because I think there were a lot of people who weren't that serious about their fate. So the ones who are left fighting, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I think the Catholics that are still there and celebrating their fate today are strong Catholics. And there are a few friends that I have across the country who really are doing great things to keep the faith alive. And I think with those type of leaders coming to the the fore, I think then there will be great hope. But also when you look at Pope Francis, when he did visit Ireland in 2018, okay, smaller crowds, but a very enthusiastic group came out. And I do think that it's, it's in the Irish psyche. I think it's so hard to separate the Irish psyche, the DNA of what it is to be Irish and Catholic values. I think young people might say today because it's trendy or they're just, they're peed off with all the abuse stories. I think they'll say, I'm turning my back on the Catholic faith. I really believe that in years to come when life, life's great challenges face them as it will face all of us, that somewhere deep down inside, they will have this foundation and the, the, of uh, comfort People are turning their back on it for a while, but I think they're going to turn right back around to it. Some people. Um, I really do. This week on CNA Newsroom, we're going back in time, a good 300 years ago, to a period of Ireland's history that illustrates the strong relationship between the people of Ireland and Catholicism. It's a chapter that involves a struggle for the English throne, mass celebrated in secret, and bounty hunters who brought in priests' heads. Despite the persecution, the resilience of Ireland's Catholics has endured even to this day. I'm your host, Jonah McKeown. Happy St. Patrick's Day. For nearly a century, Catholics throughout Ireland had to practice their faith largely in secret. In many areas, this took the form of secret outdoor masses, with large rocks acting as makeshift altars. Many of the paths to these secret rocks are still visible in Ireland today, and most of them, including the one in the picture accompanying this episode if you're listening online, have a difficult history attached to them. That particular um, one had quite a sad story attached to it because then there the um, priests and um, all the congregations, um, they were um, murdered um, at that point. That was Katrina Dunnett, an Irish artist based in the UK. We wanted to play more of her interview on this episode, but our connection wasn't amazing, as you heard. Anyway, two summers ago, Katrina started traveling around Ireland taking photos of the largely forgotten rural paths that Catholics used to get to secret outdoor mass over 300 years ago. You're probably wondering, secret masses? Irish Catholics killed for worshipping? What's the context here? To get an idea, we called up Jennifer Paxton at the Catholic University of America. She's a medievalist who works in the university's Irish studies program. Okay, buckle up, because we're going to try our best to cram nearly two centuries of history into the next couple minutes. Here's Jennifer. We have to actually go back to the 16th century to the Reformation. 
When the dust settled on the Protestant Reformation, which began in Europe in 1517, Ireland was still overwhelmingly Catholic, and England, which ruled over Ireland, was, as of 1535, officially Protestant. And there came a point where, in the eyes of the English, Protestantism equaled loyalty to the English throne, and Catholicism was akin to resistance. Uh, because of this religious divide and because of the global uh, split between Catholics and Protestants, uh, the English government regarded Catholicism as potentially treasonous at all times. See, several of England's enemies at the time were Catholic countries, like Spain and France. Jennifer said England began to fear that Ireland could become a backdoor for invasion, and that fear wasn't entirely unfounded. Catholic rebels in Ireland did often ally themselves with Spanish and French forces. They would appeal to the common Catholicism that they shared in order to do that. So, of course, to the English authorities, Catholicism equated with uh, treason and bringing in foreign enemies. And so that was one of the main reasons why Catholicism was seen as something to uh, stamp down as much as possible. But it wasn't entirely political. Jennifer said there was also just plain prejudice on both sides of the Reformation. Many Protestants believed Catholicism was a kind of idolatry. They were particularly offended by the Mass. They were a little bit confused about the doctrine of transubstantiation and they sort of saw it as the worship of the host. So they, they didn't think that the Mass should be celebrated. Catholics were seen as essentially like another foreign enemy state. This is Colin C. Murphy, an Irish author who wrote a book about the persecution of Catholics in Ireland called The Priest Hunters. There were like six million people, six million Catholics under British rule who were all potential spies, traitors, enemies of state. More from Colin in a bit. Here's Jennifer again. Throughout the 17th century, there were uh, progressive regulations on Catholicism. Then you get to the late 17th century and things really get interesting. It all comes down to basically the struggle for the English throne. King Charles I is executed in 1649 during the English Civil War. His son, Charles II, is restored to the throne about 10 years later. But Charles II has no legitimate heirs. His younger brother, James, is next in line for the throne. The only problem? James had converted to Catholicism. So now England, which by this point is a deeply Protestant country, is looking at a Catholic king. They're not exactly happy about that. Uh, there are attempts, in fact, throughout Charles II's reign to figure out some other solution uh, to uh, the succession. Charles II dies in 1685. And so they end up with Catholic James. They decide, okay, we'll put up with him. He's an older man, right? He's in his 50s. It won't be long. After all, James has no sons. He has two daughters and both are Protestant. So they thought, we'll just wait this out and then we'll have a Protestant queen. It'll all be fine. Well, James and his second wife have a boy. And guess what? He's baptized Catholic. And now that is going to be a Catholic male heir to the throne who will displace his Protestant older sisters because that's how gender worked in those days. And all hell breaks loose because the people who have just been sort of hanging on, the Protestants who've been just hanging on, thinking, okay, we'll just put up with this guy for a while, then we'll have a Protestant. Now they see Catholics as far as the eye can see, and that's when they lose it. The Glorious Revolution of 1688 removes James from the throne. William of Orange takes his place. 
and William is the son-in-law of James. And most importantly, he's Protestant. And so everything's going to be fine, right? James is not happy. He wants his throne back. He's not going to be able to do that directly because now William and Mary are very securely uh, in place in England. He needs to use the back door. The back door is Ireland. This was the fear all along that you would have this foreign enemy, the Spanish or the French or somebody would use Ireland as a springboard with the Catholic faith as a, as a glue to hold the whole thing together. Well, it all comes about with James because James ends up going to Ireland with French support. William of Orange invades Ireland to battle James and William wins in the Battle of Boyne in 1690. A year later in Limerick, William and James signed a treaty. James and the Catholics who support him surrender. That treaty, on paper at least, upheld the rights of Catholics, but the English Parliament doesn't ratify the treaty. Instead, England passes several penal laws against Catholics in Ireland to stamp out any lingering feelings of rebellion against the throne. The penal laws strip Catholics of their right to bear arms. Catholics can no longer serve in the navy or the army. Catholics can no longer own a horse worth more than five pounds. They want to make sure that Catholics in Ireland do not have the capacity to stage another rebellion. This thing about the horses is really to try to stop the prominent members of the Catholic community from being able to mount a cavalry regiment. Catholics could no longer study to be judges or lawyers. They couldn't serve in Parliament, which meant no voting rights or representation. And their land was progressively confiscated through a provision that barred Catholics from handing down their estates to a single heir. Unless, say, the oldest heir converted to Protestantism, which many of them did in order to maintain their gentry status. So a lot of these restrictions are intended to try to uh, defang uh, the Catholic ruling class. Many of the professions that would have allowed people to rise to social and political prominence were uh, cut off to them, and that was true for most of the 18th century. Catholics had already been in trouble in Ireland for several decades. The Settlement Acts, introduced in 1652 and 1662, had effectively banned the practice of Catholicism. The penal laws cemented their place as second-class citizens. Catholic bishops were forced out and priests could no longer be educated within Ireland. So for many, many years, Catholic families would have to send their sons to seminaries on the continent in France or Spain or Belgium to learn to be priests. And then they might sort of sneak back into the country and serve the population more or less in secret. The restriction on worship led many Irish Catholics to celebrate Mass outside, in secret. As we mentioned before, this was frequently in caves or in fields with large rocks serving as makeshift altars. They're usually a huge, big, flat rock, about the size of a car, uh, and they would often have like a cross carved into them. People were forced to, when they wanted to have a Mass, Priests would have to disguise themselves until the last moment, so they would all go off to the mountainside, far from the eyes of the, the authorities, and they would hold a master. Um, and they, while they did discover many of these, and often when they were discovered by troops, they were, people were butchered. 
Ireland isn't a big country, but uh, at the time it, it, it would have seemed vast to, you know, it was a vast territory to, to cover. And it was simply logistically impossible for the, the English authorities to, you know, prevent four or five million people from attending these secret masses. So they just couldn't do it. So they came up with the idea of introducing a bounty. So they'd get privateers to go and hunt down these people. And it, the idea was that if they cut off the heads of these, the priests, bishops, Catholicism would eventually just die out. So, they, you know, that's, that's essentially where the priest hunter was born. After the break, more about the priest hunters of Ireland. Stay with us. I'm Kevin Jones, a longtime journalist with Catholic News Agency. I'm an Irish-American Catholic by the grace of God. It's that time of year when we remember the life of St. Patrick. There's another person you should know about, a person whose story has touched me deeply. John Curry, who died an anonymous Irish immigrant in 1940s New York. At the age of five years old, in his Irish hometown, he and 14 other villagers saw an amazing sight. Figures that appeared to be the Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and St. John. John Curry was the youngest witness to the apparition of Our Lady of Knock. Irish history, like Catholic history, is full of all these minor figures in the background. If you enjoy hearing about the big stories or about the unknown people who played a role in them, you should subscribe to CNA Newsroom. Subscribing is easy and free on any podcast app. Just open whatever podcast app on your phone, type CNA Newsroom into the search bar, and hit the subscribe button. If you don't have a podcast app on your phone already, you can use Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, or just about any podcast app available on your app store. And if you like listening to CNA Newsroom, leave us a rating and a review. Those help other potential listeners find our show. And now, back to the episode. May God save Ireland. When we think of bounty hunters, you know, we tend to think of them in terms of like Clint Eastwood in the Old West. And the thought that a class of that character might have existed in Ireland naturally piqued my interest. It wasn't always illegal to be a Catholic priest in Ireland during the penal laws era. For a while, the English government allowed for one priest per Catholic parish, and priests were required to register with the government and stay within a certain part of Ireland. But Colin said the regulations on priests became more and more oppressive over time. The majority of priests who were captured were imprisoned, usually under brutal conditions. Alternatively, they were um, sentenced to transportation to a penal colony, um, or they might be imprisoned for several months and then they'd be exiled to France or Spain, to another Catholic country. I was actually amazed at the courage of a lot of these men as I was doing the research because if you returned having been exiled you were definitely going to be killed you know and hundreds of them returned repeatedly. There were many bounty hunters active at the time. And the reason is obvious the reward offered was initially 
20 pounds for a priest and 50 for a bishop and they then increase that to 30 pounds for a priest and 50 for a bishop and just to put that in context uh, a skilled tradesman such as a carpenter um, earned at the time about 15 pounds per annum so if you caught the bishop it was like essentially winning the lottery you know so the, it attracted all sorts priest hunters came from all walks of life a lot of them were former English soldiers, many of whom had come to Ireland the previous century and had stolen a lot of land from Irish farmers. There were also many ex-criminals who sailed over from England to become priest hunters. I have to say it attracted a lot of Irish people who um, were reduced to this by, because of dire poverty. Needless to say, it was a challenging time and priest hunting was obscenely lucrative. Because it was so lucrative, um, they could afford to, they, they would move into a community and they would live there for weeks, months, you know, six months if they had to, um, become part of the local community, maybe get a job, you know, or do some farm labor or something like that. And they, they'd, they'd be having drinks with the locals and stuff and it'd win their confidence. And eventually somebody would say, Father Colgan is going to celebrate a mass on the mountainside next weekend, you know, and he'd, once he'd learned the information, he'd then alert the authorities and they'd be lying in wait and they'd arrest everybody. That was, that was one method. One of the priest hunters Colin profiled in his book was actually a former Catholic priest himself, a man by the name of John Garcia. John fled to England to escape the Spanish Inquisition and renounced his Catholic faith, becoming a Protestant. came over to Ireland and became a priest hunter, quite a successful one, and he used his Catholic knowledge to you know, because he's an ex-priest, to he wormed his way into um, his Catholic society in, in Dublin. Weirdly, Garcia ended up as an Anglican minister in, of all places, North Carolina. After he'd finished his priest hunting days. Another priest hunter was Barry Lowe. Unlike many of the hunters, Barry wasn't in it for the money. He was a big landowner and very wealthy. He seems to have just done it as a pastime. He was basically, he was a really bigoted man who hated Catholics. Uh, and he was reputed to have killed, uh, killed ten, at least 10 priests and to have captured great many more. Perhaps the most infamous was an Irish trader by the name of Sean Nassagert. Sean grew up Catholic, but when he was only a teenager, he was arrested for stealing horses and sentenced to death. At the time, local police were under a lot of pressure by the government to arrest Catholic priests, but they were stretched pretty thin. So the local sheriff gave Sean a choice. He said you can be hanged or you can become a priest hunter and I'll pay you a bounty. In return, Sean would have to promise to bring the sheriff the head of at least one priest every year. He used his knowledge of, you know, because he was an Irish peasant originally, he used that knowledge um, to worm his way into local communities and disguise himself as a priest and so on and so forth. Another of Sean's tactics was to find a house inside a village and spread the word that someone in the house was on their deathbed. Because people were so, like the, the thought of dying with the, the last rites in those days was just abhorrent to people, you know. So eventually word would reach the priest and he, he would have no choice really, he'd have to leave his hiding place and go to this location and it would just simply be a trap. He'd walk through the door and he'd be arrested. While the Catholic persecution by the government and the soldiers was certainly brutal, not everyone was on board, including many Irish Protestants.
it's not true that Catholics were steadily persecuted all the time because there was a lot of de facto toleration. The authorities often knew that mass was going on. Um, they would even know that there were unofficial religious houses continuing in operation. So we actually have reports of inspectors who were sent around in Galway to find the Catholic houses. Like, are there any priests or monks or nuns in, in Galway uh, so that they could be uh, fined for uh, doing their 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 Catholic thing illicitly. And so we actually know that what often happened was that these inspectors were, uh, shall we say, bribed with alcohol <laughs> so that they would they would be they would be entertained on their inspection tour. And afterwards, they would just somehow not remember that they had found a house of, of monks or nuns in the city. A lot of this winking and nodding uh, occurred uh, because many, uh, many even of the Protestant Irish had no interest in ratting out their neighbors. They, they lived in, in, in harmony with each other. Most Protestants, they, they found these laws, you know, cruel and unjust. Um, they, you know, they, they were human beings at the end of the day, even though it was the 18th century, you know, and people's frame of reference you were, were completely different and that. But, you know, a lot of them, you know, their humanity came through and they just thought, I can't treat my fellow man like this, you know, because they were Christians, you know. Some of the Protestant authorities actively helped their Catholic neighbors avoid capture and punishment. I mean, I can give you a couple of good examples. There was one in County Mead. Uh, there was a priest called Father Barnwell. He always seemed to be a step ahead of the authorities. Uh, they turn up at where he was supposed to be and he'd be gone, you know, he... He, he just kept step ahead, and this went on for years and years. Eventually, it transpired that the local magistrate, his name was um, Robert Waller, uh, he had been supplying uh, Father Barnwell with information. Every time those priest hunters going to move in on him, he would send out somebody to warn him, you better move, you know, go to a different village, go to a different safe house. Uh, and this went on for years and years, and eventually Waller was caught. Um, in the, in the, he was caught in the act and he lost his, his position as a magistrate. Collins said Waller continued to support other priests even after losing his position. Protestant farmers would also sometimes protect priests by disguising them as laborers. And so he'd be working on the farm during the day, but um, he'd be secretly carrying out his duties as a priest. One of the most amusing was a man um, called... Corbalis, who was a very wealthy landowner with a huge big manor house. And what he did was he set aside a room in the house on the second floor and he told all, all but one servant that the room was haunted with the spirits of his ancestors and they were not under any circumstances to go in because they disturbed, he, they disturbed the spirits and people were very superstitious back in those days. The ghost was actually a Catholic priest who would leave the house under the cover of night to travel around celebrating weddings, baptisms, funerals, you name it. All the Catholic rites were all performed in the middle of the night. He would then come back, the servant would replace the, uh, uh, the ladder, he'd get back in and he'd sleep during the day. And of course, while the servants were there during the day, they kept hearing creaky floorboards of this guy moving around. And so they completely bought the, the ghost story. The persecution of Catholics wound down by the late 18th century, and by 1770, the British had turned their attention to a new threat to the throne, the American Revolution. 
And it seemed a good time to be able to recruit troops in Ireland, whether they were Catholic or Protestant. And so one of the first penal laws to be suspended was the law against Catholics joining the army. The other penal laws were slowly but surely dismantled, with the last one to go in 1829. Although many of the mass paths and rocks that Catholics used all those years ago have been forgotten, some live on as spots for the celebration of mass to this day. One example is the mass rock at Carker, which is located in County Cork, southwest Ireland. It's relatively inaccessible, located deep in the woods, but the local parish in the nearby town of Donorail still celebrates a special mass at the rock every summer, having revived the tradition in 1984. Colin said the dark days of persecution actually, in many ways, strengthened the resolve of Ireland's Catholics and helped to cement Catholicism as an inextricable part of Irish identity. Catholicism became directly, it's inextricably linked with Irish nationalism. And that directly led to a whole series of uprisings. It strengthened Catholic resolve. It was more important than than anything to them, as I said. It was like their their raison d'etre, you know, it was their promise of eternal life. And if they they had to give that up, um, they had nothing. Before I close out this episode, I'd like to pass the mic over to my colleague, Kevin Jones, who you heard in the commercial break. Kevin is Irish-American, and he's incredibly proud of that heritage. For today's episode, Kevin wrote and recorded this reflection on being Irish and Catholic. Every St. Patrick's Day, there are always questions about what it means to be Irish or to be an Irish-American. For me, answering this question means thinking about God's grace amid great loss. For Irish Americans, there is the loss of a homeland through emigration and famine, the loss of a language through assimilation, and there is often the determination to fight for one's faith and to fight for one's culture in a hostile society. The Denver Irish have a proud history of fighting the Ku Klux Klan, with their words and with their fists when necessary. You can hear much Irish romanticism about the land of saints and scholars, the romanticism of rebellion and political victory and also a sense that the Romanticism can fall terribly short and just cover up great tragedies. There are tragedies like the ambitious Irish-American who shifts his principles for political or financial gain. There are atrocities like the transatlantic clergy abuse scandals or the Irish Civil War and the troubles of the 1970s. But shining through all this, we have stories about those very Irish saints. St. Patrick, who was abducted from Britain and sold into slavery, still returned to evangelize the Irish after he escaped. St. Bridget, the daughter of a slave and a chieftain, was a dairy worker. She milked the cows just as she lived an impulsive life of charity, just giving to whoever would ask. Legend has it that she prayed that God would take away her beauty so that she could join a convent. God granted her prayer. For me, the most touching story is the life of John Curry. He was the youngest witness of the Our Lady of Knock apparition in 1879 Ireland, when he was only five years old. Later, he was forced to emigrate from his home, his home where he had seen the Virgin Mary herself, St. Joseph and St. John. With 14 other witnesses, little John Curry saw a lamb and a cross on an altar. After he moved to New York, 
He lived a humble life with great Marian devotion. He served Mass every day, and he hardly spoke of what he had seen. Decades later, when the apparition was being investigated, he told investigators, I remember it as well as I do last night. I will remember them till I go to my grave. John Curry died in the care of the Little Sisters of the Poor. He was buried in an unmarked grave in Long Island. Only a few years ago, he was reinterred at Old St. Patrick's Cathedral with great ceremony. For me, these stories of humble piety cut through the false romanticism, the cynicism caused by scandal, and the various flaws of Irish Christianity. It is perhaps that very loss and deprivation that leaves a space for God to work in Irish hearts and in the hearts of all those who look to the Irish spirit. May God save Ireland. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kevin Jones. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I was your host this week, Jonah McKeown, and our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks to all our guests. If you like CNA Newsroom, please subscribe, rate, and review, and share our podcast. God bless, and again, have a happy and safe St. Patrick's Day. Oh, one last thing. Two of our CNA correspondents, Courtney Morris and Christine Roussel, are actually quite accomplished Irish dancers. This is the sound of Courtney dancing on the wooden floor of CNA's Rome office. If you want to see a video of Courtney doing Irish dance, and trust me, it's quite impressive, we shared it on Twitter, at CNA Newsroom. Okay, bye. Okay, this is the last thing, I promise. Colm, the journalist we heard from at the beginning of the episode, interviewed an Irish guy on live TV a couple of years ago who says he has the strongest Irish accent you will ever hear. Just for fun, here's a sample, and check out the podcast show notes for a link to the full video on YouTube. And we're here in Clarny because we've been invited by a very special character. I hear he's a local legend, and his name is Sham. Sham, look at that. No reason, Sham, look at that. Sham, how are you? Good, my dear. We're here in Killarney today. Nice to meet you. Are you from Killarney? I'm 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 on Bugger. I'm I'm Born and bred. Born and bred in Killarney. And come here, Sham, we're trying to figure out what makes Killarney so special. What do you think makes it a great town? All right, kid. They're pretty more in Killarney. All the Jews will more of that. Not hard to do. Yeah.